Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back. Let's go to the phones. And joining us, as he does every week at this time, one of our favorite and most longtime contributors, Nate Zielinski. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well. You know, and I don't even think I have to give you a long introduction anymore because you've made yourself so famous. It's just like the show is thrilled to have Nate Zielinski. We don't have to tell people who you are. <laughs> well, I'm humbled by that, Terry. I, I don't think it's true, but but we sure try our best to, to catch and hunt everything uh, that this great state has to offer, and we try to share it with everybody. That's for sure. Uh, you've done a great job, my friend. So transitioning walleyes, now I think I may be wrong, but you're probably going to talk about the fact that the bait is moving and the water levels are either going up or down. And, and because the fish are in their summer mode, people are going to fish memories instead of sticking with the fish. <laughs> That's very, very true, Terry. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think, uh, you know, for most anglers out there, they've been experiencing just a tremendous bite. And, you know, we, we fish all the front range reservoirs, Cherry Creek, Chatfield, Pueblo up north. And you know, we hit Aurora and Bar, and we kind of hit everywhere. And we try to take advantage of all the bites. And I would say for sure uh, I have found myself spending more time on Cherry Creek this year than I have probably in the last 10 years uh, combined. It's just Cherry Creek has been absolutely on fire. I can't tell you how many days in a row we, we broke that 100 fish mark. Um, and honestly, Terry, I feel like old mother nature kind of has a grudge against us. Um, and, and she's kind of cutting us off just a pinch early. Not a lot early, but just a little early, Terry. And I kind of want to talk about that. Um, obviously, our, our shad dictate so much of how we catch fish. And, you know, if you've you know, followed anything that I've done or came to a seminar, I preach food more than anything. And it really is, Terry. I, I encourage anglers to really think about that because no matter no matter what you're fishing, whether you're fishing your trout at Spinney or lake trout at Williams Fork or walleyes in the front range, food dictates where these fish are at. Everybody thinks the fish hang out for a reason, and it's not because they're relaxing. It's not because they're comfortable. Fish are located where they are at due to a food source. It, it's just the, it's the biggest thing that helps myself catch fish on a daily basis is knowing that food source and anticipating that food source, and it's everything. And where you've been catching walleyes for the last six weeks is due to a food source, whether that is feeding on midges or bloodworms or crawdads or perch or shad or minnows. It doesn't matter, but you have been catching fish in a certain area due to a food source being readily available there. And honestly, Terry, our shad spawned several weeks ago, even a month ago in some situations, and our our this year's shad, so shad shad of this year, I should say, so the young of this year, that shad has been sitting on shore. We usually don't see that young shad, so the fresh hat shad, we usually don't see them move off the shoreline out into the basin until, you know, I would say usually that July 10th, July 12th, 15th. Usually we get into about the second week of July before we see that shad really move out into the lake uh, and really see these walleyes get super active on that shad. Now this past week, we had some awesome rain. It's one of those things that you never can complain about the rain, Terry. We need the water. We need everything to, to help our forest 
stay, you know, moist. We don't have fires. The water and rain is a good thing for our state. So I hate to complain about it, but we had so much rain that it cooled off our water just a little bit. So when you get those heavy, heavy rains, it actually cools off, especially the shallow water. And all that shad was living in one, two, maybe even three feet of water on the shoreline. And all that rain cooled that, that shallow water by about three degrees. And what it did was made that, that young shad uncomfortable in that cold water. So they migrated offshore out to slightly deeper water where they have more consistent temperatures. Um, so the rain has driven the, that young shad out off the shore, out into that main lake, uh, really before they were ready and, and more so before us anglers were ready to give up that, that amazing you know, early spring or late spring, early summer bite that we've been having. So nonetheless, usually it's about when the shad hit about an inch long, we really see them migrate offshore. That shad right now is about three quarters of an inch long, and they are out in that main lake. Um, and it's definitely starting to change that bite. So we wanted to talk about that because – <clears throat> Excuse me. I know I talked to so many anglers at the boat dock yesterday and the day before at Cherry Creek, and then uh, Wednesday at Chatfield, and you know, talking to those anglers. Everybody's like, man, we've been doing really good, and all of a sudden it started to slow, and they were blaming the weather. So many anglers like, oh, man, all this weather's got them in a funk, um, and it's not the case. It's just all of a sudden we have so much food that anytime you deal with natural food, the bite gets just a little bit tougher, and, and that's what's happening. So we want to talk about ways to overcome that, ways to stay on top of the fish, and what you need to do as an angler to, to keep up uh, the catching throughout the course of the summer. Well, I, I can relate to this totally. I can remember um, when I was writing for In Fisherman and Walleye Insider back in the 90s, I used to hear that um, Glendale Reservoir in Wyoming, that early they were in the trees and then they moved out to the break line and you could do great with bottom bouncers and jigs, but after you got through about the end of June, you might as well not even fish Glendale because the fish were gone. And Gary Darling and I went out there. It was 4th of July weekend, and we put on a clinic, really, on pulling planer boards and and crankbaits over about 60 feet of water, but only about four feet deep. And uh, Charlie Black, who's a great tournament angler, was running our camera boat, and he was a jig guy. And he saw how many fish we harvested. He immediately went out and bought planer boards because (laughs) you're right, those it wasn't that the fish were there. It's just that everybody was still trying to catch them where they weren't. Exactly. That's just it, Terry. And really, it's understanding that. So, you know, when you pull out, uh, you know, to Cherry Creek, Chatfield, Pueblo, boy, it doesn't matter right now. If you pull out to those fisheries, you have to think about the situation. That's really all it takes. I mean, we control for these fish. We can cash for these fish. We can even still jig for these fish. But the biggest thing is understanding the concepts of what's happening. So when you go out there and you have to look at where that young shad is, and you'll see them on your graph. So this week at Cherry Creek, particularly we'll talk yesterday, we'll try to bring you the most current up-to-date information so i was at cherry creek and when i went out there you can see all this shad on the graph i mean it is waves and clouds and pods and massive schools of shad on the graph and what i do is i look for what's the lowest that those shad are swimming and yesterday the lowest those shad were swimming was about eight feet which is really deep honestly usually we don't see that bait fish dropping below four or five feet in the water column but yesterday i had shad out to about eight feet so what you have to do is you have to transition that to understand hey if i'm going to troll for these walleyes i need to put my bait right there at that eight foot eight and a half foot so i'm the first thing the all I see because the walleyes will always sit 
just underneath the bait. But if you're that angler that has still been live bait rigging, you know, using slow death, using jigs, using live bait rigs, using all the traditional live bait techniques has been working so well for the last six weeks, you can still continue that. The biggest thing is you have to understand the level that that bait fish is at. So if that bait fish is at eight foot, they're just swimming around eight foot below the surface. If you're sitting on structure, say an old road bed or a flat, if that structure is 10, 12, 14 feet, there is no ambush point for the walleye. So there's no point for the walleye to sit on structure that's 12 foot because the bait's not going to be hitting that structure swimming up and over it anymore. The bait is well above it. So there's no funnel point. So if your structure is deep, there's no point of the walleye sitting there to, to feed on this approaching bait fish. So what you have to do is you have to determine how deep the bait is. So if the bait, for example, like Cherry Creek, if that bait's eight foot down, you need to find structure. So again, points, underwater roadbeds, flats, but you need to find structure that is shallower than the lowest point of your bait fish. So yesterday the bait fish was at eight foot. I just continued on my live bait rigging, but I found structure that was six and seven feet. Luckily at Cherry Creek, there's lots of that. That entire south end, there's two or three, you know, humps and roads that, that get shallower than that, you know, that seven, eight feet. So it really allows those walleyes to stay on structure and still approach that new bait fish and you can continue those techniques but it's very important that you remember those things because again if you're staying out there on that normal structure your fish are going to disappear and you're going to get into that summer slump real quick of under you know, more just being confused where are the walleyes at what are they doing are they only feeding at night are they in deep water um and the only reason i say those couple examples because that's probably the biggest thing that you hear when you pull up to the boat dock in mid-july i hear the same thing like oh we got to start night fishing that's the only time the walleyes are feeding or you know they see that the graphs you know water temperature 76 degrees and they're like oh the walleyes are in deep water trying to find cold which is not the case they are always where the food is and in, in midsummer that food is shallow and that's where those walleyes are at and it's a phenomenon terry we can go out in mid-july 100 degree you know air temperature dead flat calm and we're catching walleyes three feet below the surface at high noon um these walleyes take advantage of that young bait fish and they are flat out gorging so don't think that you have to really change a lot. You just have to know where the bait fish are, what level they're at, and fish in that level. So right now, if they're six to eight feet below the surface, you can stay on structure. Now, when that bait fish starts getting really high in the water column, two, three, four feet below the surface like you were talking about, that's when a lot of times you can't find structure shallow enough. So that's when we do have to go out there, you know, either troll planer boards or cast baits to them. But the main concept here generally speaking, you're going to be looking shallower. Know the level of the bait fish, understand the concepts of that, uh, and then to kind of top it off, anytime you deal with a very well-fed fish, start thinking about more reactionary techniques, more so than really spoon-feeding them. So even if you're doing the live bait stuff for another week or two while you can find structure shallow enough, when you've been going you know, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 miles an hour in the last six weeks, now bump it up to one mile an hour. Don't let those fish think about it. Make them react on your bait and that reaction is going to put a lot more fish in the boat at the end of the day i couldn't agree more i want to go back to a point you made earlier because i think this is really key now when you find those fish on structure that's shallow you can work the bottom because they will feed on the bottom because they're up against that structure you can pull crankbaits above that structure and still catch them but when you get out on those suspended fish and you get out and those fish are over 15 20 or 50 feet, depending on the lake you're on, 
you can't pull those crankbaits below those fish. We've found over and over again that they'll strike up, but they'll seldom strike down at that that suspended fish unless it's relating to structure, just doesn't want to eat downward. It wants to strike upward. You are so right, Terry. And I mean, when you say seldom, um, I mean, it's like winning the lottery type seldom. Um, You could literally have your bait six inches below that walleye, and they will 100% negate it because they know that every piece of food in the lake is above them. So when something's below them, it doesn't even have any interest. They know where the food's at. And when you have millions and billions of young shad out there, they know where that's the food at. And I would say, honestly, a walleye is more likely to come up four feet to hit a bait rather than go down six inches. So when we start pulling cranks, the biggest tip I can tell people, start shallow and work your way deep. So many anglers start deep and work their way shallow. And in this type situation, like you were saying, pulling planer boards, we're pulling high action baits. So jointed flicker shads, pulling hot and tots, you know, almost bass style crankbaits, lipless crankbaits, very, very, you know, erratic, rattling, side to side movement. You want a lot of action. We pull them fast, two miles an hour, even three miles an hour. But to give anglers an example, when we're pulling planer boards for this type bite, I can't tell you how many times that I am literally setting my flicker shads and my hot and tots eight, 10, even 12 feet behind the planer board. So you didn't hear me wrong. I am literally talking feet, like 10, 12 feet behind the planer board. Half the time, you only have to take the planer board off to net the fish. That's how shallow these fish are, and that's the mistake that anglers make. You know, you see trollers go out there, and they listen to the show, and they're like, all right, we got a troll, and you see them cast a bait way out or let 50 feet of line out, and they think that that's shallow, um, and they, you know, long line or put it behind a planer board, and that bait is deep. We're talking about fishing shallow. You are literally a rod's length behind your planer board, a rod's length behind the boat, and that's where you're going to catch these walleyes. So make sure you take note of that. If you're listening to this, emphasize it. Write it down. Shallow, shallow, shallow. Again, especially in that trolling situation, you are not very far back to keep that bait in that two, three, four, five, six feet of water. Um, These baits, even on the shallowest diving versions, it does not take much line to have that bait get down to depth. So so keep that in mind. It'll take you a lot further, and it's going to show you uh, a lot about these fish. Now, the one thing, I know some people are listening to this, and they're thinking we're being negative. They're like, oh, man, you know, now it's going to get tough. Um, just talking yesterday, just the really the first couple days, really since Wednesday is when these bait fish really started to affect the fishing. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, just in the last three days, I have caught the biggest fish uh, of the summer pattern. So we catch huge fish in March and April, but if you look at May and June, just since Wednesday, um, I saw the biggest fish that I've seen in the last six weeks. Uh, we're getting fish. You know, yesterday my big fish was a 25-inch fish. The day before, my big fish was a 24-inch fish. Um, but we are seeing these bigger fish because now that the bait's shallow, a lot of these fish that have been suspended uh, in deeper water feeding on big shad are now coming up to the level of those little shad because they're so easy to catch and they're so easy to digest um, that we're seeing some big fish starting to come around. So that is the big plus of the summer pattern. So even though you know catching 100 and 150 fish days, those type days are going to slow down a hair. Uh, but if you stay on top of your fish, fish shallow, you are going to have an increase in size, which is one of the big benefits uh, of trying to understand and keep up on these fish. Nate, we are out of time, but real quick, what do you got coming up? 
Absolutely, Carrie. We have so much stuff coming up. We have catch rate this coming Wednesday. We keep seeing new anglers, and we encourage it. Come try it out. Uh, catch rates at Chatfield. This is coming Wednesday, 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, $20 per species. Huge prizes. We freed you free dinner. A uh, lot of stuff there. Go to our website. And then always, we encourage everybody, we are hosting uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Big Game Hunting Series. Uh, make sure you go to Colorado Outdoors. Sign up for that e-newsletter. Follow their Facebook page, their Instagram account, their YouTube channel. We launched this week phase one of infield scouting. It's all about understanding food source, bedding, water. Uh, and then coming up this Tuesday or Wednesday, we are launching phase two, which is about finding animals. I was out in the field this last week filming this, so it's all up to date. It's all live. Uh, and we have pictures of big bulls and walking you through how to build behavioral patterns to create success this fall. So really, as hunting starts to kind of get ramped up, we got to start scouting. Follow that. I walk you through everything you should be doing. Uh, it's real time, and I promise you, it will help you create more success this fall. So again, that's the Big Game Hunting Series. It's brought to you on all the outlets of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. All right, my friend, we have to go, but thank you so much. We will talk to you again next week. We'll talk to you soon, sir. Thank you. All right, Nate Zielinski, always a great resource. We're going to take time out. When we come back, uh, the folks from Jacks are going to join us. We're going to talk about clothing and ways to protect your way, protect yourself from sun in Colorado, and I think they have a few fishing tips for us, too. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Speaking of Jack's Outdoors, um, joining us on the phone from the Jack's in Lafayette is Mike Krieger. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you doing? I'm in Minnesota. The weather's beautiful here, but what kind of weather are you having down in Lafayette today? Well, it's just your typical, boring, beautiful Colorado weather. Uh, sunny days and, you know, sort of cloudy afternoons, sometimes a little sprinkle, but just enough to keep the keep the fish on the move. Well, you know, speaking of the sunny weather in Colorado, a lot of people don't realize, especially if they head up in the mountains, that uh, the UV penetration in Colorado can rival some of it in the tropics because we don't have a lot of atmosphere to protect you and uh Bridget Cochelle from Parks and Wildlife has a joke. She goes, if you want to have a bad day outdoors, just don't put on sunscreen and don't drink any water, she says. And that, and uh, people can get burnt so quickly. And I, I know we're going to talk a few fishing tips later on, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, protecting yourself from the sun. There's a lot of different ways to do it. We probably start with sunscreen, but give us some feedback. Well, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, we you know, people, they get out in the river, and I, I tell people when I fly fish, I'm in the middle of the river, but sometimes I forget to, to hydrate. So I carry a life straw with me, and I can just sort of lean down because you figure we've got some of the best water in the world. Just lean down and take a, you know, a good swig of water, and you're good to go for a while. But, yeah, sunscreen, I mean, you're always, you know, as as, fly, as a fly fisherman, when I'm fly fishing versus doing bait casting and spin casting, it's you, you want to keep that sunscreen away from your fly line because it does damage to it. But you definitely don't want to not put it on because so we've had several customers come in and they're just red as lobsters. And I don't even have to ask them where they've been. They've been on the lake, you know, getting rays from the sun and then some, the reflection off the lake as well. So what kind of sunscreen do you recommend? Are there certain numbers of protection or brands that stand out to you? Uh, we carry a pretty wide array. We, uh, the, the banana boat comes to mind right off. Um, it's, I mean, you can get a crazy amount of protection. I, I typically go with like a 30 SPF because that's, 
I mean, that'll that'll keep you covered. You can wear that for several days in a row and just be fine. But, I mean, if you're going to be in the sun for a whole bunch of days, you want to definitely crank the number to maybe 60 SPF just to, you know, keep your – so your skin doesn't keep you off the water. That would be tragic. Another thing with sunscreen is people don't realize you actually sh- – shouldn't wait till you're out to put it on. It's it's not a layer that goes on. It actually interacts with your skin to give you UV protection. So you need to get it on before you get out there, don't you? Yeah, it's a really good idea, and especially if you're going with kids, too, because sometimes the kids go run off as soon as the car stops. So if you can get them screened up before you even get in the car, you know, heading to the lake or to the stream or whatnot, that's good. But, yeah, it does take, somewhere I heard, 20 minutes to, to really kick in and give you the protection. So if you if you put it on when you're in the sun, you're getting 20 minutes of full blast sunshine, and that's that's going to start you off on a bad, in a bad route. Now, um, yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Another thing it does too, if you put it on early, you talked about your fly line. Um, we don't know. I mean, there's varied opinions on it whether it affects the fish if you touch your presentation. So it, it gives you a chance to wash your fingertips and get it off before you start handling your fishing gear. So what about how you put it on? Do you have a variety? Do you? I know you sell just about everything at Jack's. Do you spray it on? Do you rub on creams? What do you like to use? Um, I like to spray stuff because you can sort of shield your eyes. Or, uh, I, I sort of use it all, um, you know, when you because I hate getting it in my eyes. I've had that happen several times, and that can just spoil a couple hours. But uh, the spray, if you can you know, spray your arms, spray your legs, and you sort of rub that in, and then... Uh, I, know I just changed what I said. I feel like a politician. But uh, then I, I rub it around my eyes so I don't get any of that in there because that's, again, that could, that's just miserable. But, um, yeah, I use sort of a mix of all of it because it all has, you know, different purposes. Yeah, let's move on to I hardly use any sunscreen anymore, and people are going, oh, and he just said don't go outdoors without sunscreen <laughs> on. But if people who watch my TV show for years, they saw me with a great big brimmed hat. And they thought that was maybe kind of a trademark thing for television. Well, I'd actually been wearing those hats for years, um, and they were to protect me from the sun. They do a great job because they protect your ears and your neck. But I've even gone further than that. I've had a couple skin cancers removed. I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. So now I've gone to wearing a sun-protective clothing. I wear long sleeves. I wear a gaiter. I wear gloves on my hands, and I wear long pants that are rated because I'm going to be out in the sun hours in some of the most intense conditions. What about that type of clothing? Do you carry that at Jack's? Oh, we've got, yeah, huge bunch. We have the Columbia, the Exoficio, Royal Robin. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much so much stuff available. It used to be you'd, you'd wear your jeans and you just roast, you know, because you just get hot in all that really thick fabric. But now you have, uh, what, the spandex, the rayons, all kinds of polyesters that, I mean, though you have a long sleeve shirt on, I mean, you, you sort of rub the fabric together and you're like, this is lightweight stuff. So, uh, it's yeah, the the fabric technology has just come such a long way in the last probably five or ten years. So I, I agree with you. I, I wear a, a Tilly hat, and, you know, my, my wife doesn't like it, but uh, it uh, keeps the sun. It's very functional. keeps the sun off my face and on my ears and my, my, my uh, lessening hair up top. And it also, the reason I like that one is it comes with a lifetime warranty. I had a blow, blow off my head when I was ice fishing two years ago, and I chased it down the road for about a quarter of a mile because I hate to lose stuff. But it's nice to have, you know, warranties on things too. But, but yeah, the uh, clothing is just so amazing anymore. I typically ice fish, you know, of course you, got, you don't have to worry about sun so much with ice fishing except on your face. 
but uh you know lake fishing it's it's good to keep you know mo- I, i'm like you i keep covered up long sleeve shirt but i i wear reddington long sleeves or super thin or north face or or uh or the the columbia pfg the performance fishing gear which is really top notch so yeah we well, have and i'll tell you stuff here uh, one of the things, uh, now that I've transitioned to wearing a gator and I wear the gloves to cover the back of my hands, well, I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. one of the first times I went out with a gator on in the intense sun, I, di- I put my gator on, and because I put my gator on, I didn't put sunscreen on and I had long sleeves. Usually when I used to not wear the gator, when I put the sunscreen on my face, I'd do the back of my hands. I didn't do that because I had my gator on, back of my hands just fried. So I make sure I put my oh. fingerless gloves on. And you're right, they're so lightweight. Now, you can get these shirts that you're actually cooler in that long sleeve shirt and those long, light pants than you are in shorts and a T-shirt. Right, because you don't have the sun just, you know, roasting your skin. We also carry, it's a, called a coolaroo. It's a neck bandana, and you just sort of dip it in the river, throw it around your neck, and now all of a sudden you're really, really cold. So that's what those, you know, long sleeves, long slacks, I mean, you throw that on your neck, and, man, you're just as happy as a clam. But uh, yeah, and those, I are, think, those are sharp as well. I think the message here is there's so many ways to protect yourself now. Learn about them and do them. I've gotten careless at times. I've had some skin cancers removed. Colorado has a lot of UV, and you just need to make sure that you take care of yourself. And Jax has it all. You can come into the Jax store. You can get any of the sunscreens you want, plus all the protective clothing and make it comfortable. I also like the protective clothing because then I don't, when I get done at the end of the day, I don't feel like I have to wash the sunscreen off like I'm all sticky, and it just makes me feel better. I want to move on real quick. You are, you do have the fishing department at the Thornton store. You're in at the fishing department. You, any good fishing tips from us? Have you heard any action close by to Lafayette? Well, I think being good fishermen here in Lafayette, the fishermen like to they they keep those secrets real close to their to their uh, to their heart. Uh, so uh, we send people all over the place, and sometimes they'll come back and they'll show us pictures of these big lunkers are catching. Um, you know, a lot of folks coming back from Boulder Reservoir; those are more of our catfish people, or Union Reservoir; those are more of our walleye folks. Uh, this part of the you know this part of the Metroplex. But uh, in Lafayette, we have a bunch of good little local lakes, like Lake Wanaka, Erie Lake, uh, Thomas Reservoir. And they're all producing pretty well. I mean, they were all stocked back in April and May. So most of the stockers have been, uh, you know, they're either smarter and they're going down lower or they've been caught and harvested and, and whatnot. But, um, I mean, they, the action in all of the lakes is going pretty well. Um, and then we've, you know, I think all the Jack stores, I only know about ours in particular, but we're just, compared to last year, we are well-stocked and ready to go. Last year, it was a little embarrassing because we had all kinds of product that we had empty pegs for, and we'd say, well, when we get it in, it's going to work great. Well, now we have it in, and now, yes, it is working great. All right. That's awesome. Before I let you go, we're, at, we're actually out of time, and but I'll make it up to Chad in the next segment. Um, <laughs> I know you're a real advocate. We talked about this. Uh, earlier in the show, but you're an advocate in this hot weather of proper fish handling. Oh, absolutely, because we can damage the fish to where, I mean, when we want to protect them so somebody else can catch them and, you know, a whole bunch of people can catch them because it's, you know, you want to harvest fish every once in a while, but it's it's the kind of thing where it's such a fun, fun hobby or sport, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just fun to share that with other people, and if we harvest all the fish or if we don't treat the fish well and they're all going belly up, uh, it's just going to be way harder to catch them. And it's already hard enough, quite honestly. Well, all right. 
we're going to let you go, Mike, but if people want more information or any of the products we talked about, any of the Jack's locations up and down the Front Range, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's always fun. You bet. Mike Krieger from Jack's. We're going to take a quick time out, and Chad Lachance is going to join us, and we're going to talk about packing for fishing trips. And Chad and I both have been on trips just recently, but much different, much different packing. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones, and joining us as he does every other week at this time, one of our favorite contributors, Chad Lachance. Good morning, Chad. Hey, good morning from Horsetooth Reservoir, Terry. Yeah, you know, you and I both have been on trips, very different trips. I drove up to Minnesota, but I we took our Jeep. We didn't take the truck. And you flew into the, the outback of Alaska in a small float plane. But when people, more and more people now that COVID has kind of lessened up are doing these fishing trips again. But how you prepare for the particular trip you're going on is so important, isn't it? Well, you know, it is, and, and both of us, uh, both you and I, Terry, have done extensive amounts of traveling for fishing trips, and uh, really what I was referencing more specifically in this in this deal is if you're actually going to fly somewhere as opposed to drive, because if I'm going to drive and you're probably the same, if there's room in my truck, I'm putting it in, period, because I'd rather have it with me, and, uh, and so when we road trip somewhere, I generally bring a lot of tackle, but I get a lot of questions about people that are going to fly somewhere. Uh, particularly things like I'm going to Florida, maybe I'm going to Disney World this summer and I want to do some fishing while I'm down there, or I'm going to do something, you know, more extravagant, like I just got back from this this trip up to Alaska with Alaskan Adventures. And uh, a couple of things come to mind, first of all, if you're going to fly with your thing, and this is the, the most common question I get is, can I bring my fishing rods? Uh, the easy answer is yes. The more specific answer is it depends a little bit on your airline because some airlines have length restrictions on the total length if you're trying to bring one-piece rods to check. And I've done that before, bring one-piece rods and just check them. I've done that a lot of times. But some of the airlines will have specific length restrictions, and typically you're going to be capped at seven-footers at the most, seven-foot rods. So that's something to keep in mind. If I'm going to bring my two-piece rods, which is way more – uh, common for me if I'm going to fly, then I bring them as a carry-on, and most of the airlines will have a 42-inch maximum for that. So you got to keep that in mind. You're, again, you're, you're going to have to bring your shorter rods. I travel with six foot six-inch uh, Veritas two-piece rods, and those are not an issue to to bring those as your carry-on or personal item on the airplane. So that's the first thing I do, and then I take advantage of the fact that I have that tube with the fishing rods and I'll stuff a bunch of stuff in there that's soft that that can go with the with the rod for instance I always have a small hand towel with me because when you're fishing your hands are going to get dirty and a hand towel is a small convenience uh, that is a great thing to have. I stuff that thing in the rod tube. Any soft plastic baits, I might stuff in that rod tube as well. So if I'm bringing packages of, you know, so, any kind of soft plastics, then I'll a lot of times stuff as many of them as I can in the tube with the rods. It, one, it'll keep the rods from moving around as you're as you're walking through the airports and things like that. And for two, it just gives you some excess storage. So that can be a, a key thing. I will throw out there uh, if you're going to bring a rod tube that I have had about 50% of the time they will open that tube and check it. So uh, I just use a, a cardboard tube. I don't use a, you know, a big plastic tube. I have historically locked that tube. These days I don't even lock it because it's on my person at all times anyway, but they are going to want to see in that. Uh, another thing that I think you should always have while you're fishing, and, and, and if you're going to travel for certain the same thing, is a pair of pliers with side cutters 
to make, but make sure a couple things. One, they're sharp enough that you can cut whatever you need to cut in terms of your braided line or something like that. Very important. But two, if you're going to carry them on, they have to be less than seven inches long. And they just checked my Berkeley seven inch pliers uh, last time I flew, and they they actually put them on a board and measured them. And I explained to them that they were sold as seven inch pliers. Fortunately, they're exactly seven inches long. If they exceed that, you will have to mail them to yourself or put them in your in your checked bag. So that's an important thing as well. And I always bring my pliers with me all the time. Uh, another thing, make sure you bring, I always bring two of because it's such an important thing is sunglasses, your polarized glasses. I always bring two pairs of them with me whenever I'm traveling, because if you lose one, break one, anything goes wrong, uh, you're going to really regret not having it. If I had been in the middle of nowhere in the Alaskan bush and lost my only pair of sunglasses, I would have been in a jam for sure. Uh, and in fact, the boat that I was in in Alaska, they would not let you fish unless you had sunglasses on because of the potential for eye injuries. So very, very important that you have your sunglasses. In my case, I bring two different lenses. If I'm going to bring two pairs, I might as well bring two different lenses. So I bring my, my standard Costa 580 in the green mirror, and then I bring the Costa 580 in the sun, silver sunrise, and the difference being one lens is a lot brighter than the other. But either one will do in a pinch, and therefore I have two pairs of those all the time. Uh, when it comes to bringing rods, the length, power, and action of the rods, I already mentioned, you know, six foot six, somewhere in that range is about where you're going to be capped, maybe seven footers. Uh, I bring six foot six, and I bring either mediums or medium heavies for almost all of the fishing I do anywhere in the country. So it doesn't matter if I'm going to the Florida Keys. I literally took the same two rods to the Florida Keys uh, last fall that I took to Alaska last week. And those are medium heavy powered rods. And that is based on the fact of the lures or the, the weights of things that I'm anticipating needing to throw. So in the keys, I also brought two medium powered rods. So I brought four total rods. They all fit in the same tube uh, when I went to the keys, but most of the time I travel with two. If I'm going to travel with two, one's a medium and one's a medium heavy with the goal being uh, basically diversity. I can do anything I need with those two rods. In Alaska, I brought only medium heavies, and the reason being is I knew I was fishing for pike and sheep fish. Those are big fish. They're going to be big baits, and so I only needed medium heavy rods, but I typically travel with medium and medium heavy rods, and they're always spinning rods, Terry, and the reason being, as much as I love bait casters, and I use them all the time, a spinning rod is more versatile tool, and if I end up on a paddleboard fishing or a rented kayak or in a weird position, I can cast spinning rods easier uh, with a wider range of baits, with a wider range of lures. Um, I can throw them from different angles. I can skip cast with them. I can throw them farther than you can throw a conventional rod, which we dispelled that myth a long time ago that a, that a casting rod will throw farther than a spinning rod. That simply is not true based on the tests that we did. But a spinning rod is more versatile, so that's what I – uh, always bring and then I bring spinning reels based on the fish that I'm going to deal with so I'll either bring a size 20 or a 30 spinning reel and the reason the difference in the two is the diameter of the spool which also translates to a larger drag surface so if I'm going to the Florida Keys and I'm going to fish for bonefish well I can do it with that same medium power rod and that same size 30 reel but I need a big big drag surface because those fish are going to run for a long ways and in so doing, the drag's going to get hot. And so the larger the drag surface, the better off you're going to be in that 
in that regard. So it really doesn't have anything to do with line capacity. That's not typically an issue when you're talking about braided line, which I'll get to in a minute. It has to do with the fact that I need the great big surface on the drag to help a make the drag last and b slow the fish down as smoothly as possible. And so that's where that comes from. And from there, always I've always got braided line on them for my traveling. That does not vary. Uh, the reason being is the braided line is much much more versatile. It's much more durable. And, uh, again, it allows me to throw a, <clears throat> excuse me, a wider range of, of weights and things like that. If I have heavy mono or fluorocarbon, it limits me to what I can throw. Uh, you know, typically, fluorocarbon will sink, so there's some issues with certain baits. Braided line, on the other hand, you can do anything with. For me, if it's medium-powered, it's going to have 15-pound braid on it, and, uh, and that's going to cover the, a ton of my angling. If it's medium-heavy rods, like I just took to Alaska, I had 20-pound braid on both of them. Uh, and I ran Berkeley X9 braid on both of those. Another great thing about the braid is if you're in the middle of nowhere in Alaska and you tangle your spool, well, rather than pull all that line off, I may not have enough extra line with me to, to allow me to re-spool the reel. I can cut the knot out and splice the two pieces back together with a uni knot and be fine. And that's not something you can do with monofilament or fluorocarbon because the knot will be uh, will be a problem for your fishing. But with braided line, even with 20 pound, I can splice it back together should I get a wind knot or a tangle in it and uh, and continue fishing. Or if you wear the front of it out, you can put 50 yards on it. Again, just tie it off and put just a small amount of line on the front of the, of, of the rod and keep it spooled, you know, freshly all the time, which I actually did in Alaska. And I was was fishing for fish in the anywhere from 15 to 25 pound range in heavy running water and at one point i spliced 50 yards a lot or 50 feet of line on the end of my deal no problem if that knot will hold up just fine you won't even hardly know it's in there uh just tie it you know tie it thoroughly be, be careful with it and you'll be fine but that system of the the braid the spinning rod either medium medium heavy and and the way i pack it goes with me all the time and then what changes is what leaders I bring to put on the end of that braid. So depending on where I'm going and what I'm doing, it might be it might be anything from tieable steel to heavy-duty fluorocarbon. Like, if, for instance, saltwater, it might be in the 30 to 60-pound fluorocarbon range for my leader. But the, the running line stays the same. So I only have to bring a small spool of leader material. Uh, you know, maybe I'm going for bonefish, so I only need 10-pound leader on that rod. So by having the little small spools of Berkeley leader material, I can travel with a whole range of stuff without carrying a bunch of weight or a bunch of bulk, which is very important. In Alaska, I was limited to 50 pounds total, and that included my boots and waders and all my fishing tackle, plus my clothing. So you have to pack very intelligently, and those little leader spools help a lot with that. And then when it comes to lures... The, the one thing that doesn't change for me, no matter where I'm going, it doesn't matter if I'm going to Minnesota where you were or the Florida Keys or Alaska, I'm bringing a bunch of jig heads and as many as I can stomach carrying uh, in terms of weight. So, And they're always going to be my standard gold minnows are going with me everywhere I go. They just paid the bills for us in Alaska in a big way on sea fish and pike. Um, they go with me everywhere, but I bring eight quarters and half ounce jig heads everywhere I go because with those, I can literally do anything from soft plastics to, I can put a whole shrimp. Let's say I'm in Florida and I'm doing the, the standard, go buy some shrimp and throw them around bridge pilings. Well, I can thread that right on a jig head and I'm ready to fish right off the bat. So the jig heads always go with me from there. As far as hard baits and things that will depend specifically on where i'm going and how much tackle i can i can fly with and things like that but the stuff i just lined out goes all the time everywhere i go on all my trips 
Chad, we are actually out of time, but I would like to continue this maybe a little bit next time you're on because talk about how you select tackle for weight and some different options for different even types of travel rods. But really, really great information, my friend. And we got to run, but we'll look forward to having you on again very soon. All right. Thanks, Terry. You guys have a great 4th of July. All right. Chad Lachance from Fishful Thinker. You can find him at fishfulthinker.com, Fishful Thinker on Facebook. Always great resource. We're going to take a quick time out, and we're going to wrap up this week's edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors and 104.3 The Fan. The first thing I want to do is mention again the resort I'm staying at here in Minnesota. It's the Dunrovin Resort, and their website is D-U-N-R-O-V-I-N, Dunrovin, one word, then dash resort.com. It's located on a 2,500-acre lake, Black Duck Lake in northern Minnesota. A good reference to be about 25 miles north of the town of Bemidji. It's on an excellent fishery, one of the best walleye fisheries in the state. Great pike. It's got a few bass in it, but it's got some incredible panfish, large bluegills. So it's a great lake, not to mention that it's located in an area of the state where there's just dozens of lakes within just a couple miles that you can drive to and you can you can fish other lakes or stay right here they offer 11 cabins from one to four bedrooms they have boat rentals everything from small tiller boats up to a big lund and uh they have some pontoon boats so a wide array they have a beach area where the kids can play with a playground they have a lot of stuff out there they have paddle craft and they have uh, the little pedal the little pedal uh, boats too so lots for the kids to do here there's basketball courts it's just uh just a myriad of activities the whole family can come uh we had one family who's next to us mom kind of hung out on the beach with the with the kids and dad was out on the lake then they'd go out on the lake together but it's a great resort that's the dunrovin resort uh d-u-n-r-o-v-i-n dash resort.com now, if you want to kind of see again some of the fishing that Karen and I and Greg Claudio did here in Minnesota, if you go to my Facebook page, the uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, we actually we actually posted some different posts. One pike fishing by Karen, another one when I was bass and walleye fishing, and then uh, Greg Claudio on his Facebook, which you can link out of those, actually posted some walleye fishing we did on Red Lake. Kind of give you a feel for what's available up here. I mean, we just barely scratched the surface. But there's so much great fishing available up here. So go to Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and take a look at all that. And and think about doing a trip up to northern Minnesota. You know, I lived here the first 30 years of my life, and... I travel the world, and it's hard to describe the incredible fishing opportunities that exist up here. Now, I understand Dan Jacobs might be in the studio. Is that right? I'm here, sir. I have a bone to pick with you. You do? What's up? Yeah. So I I call in. Karen and I are trying to coordinate the show this morning to get started from our beautiful remote location on Black Duck Lake in Minnesota. And Kyle says, I'm so busy, Dan has me doing stuff for his show already. Wait your turn. Well, I, you know, I'm I, I'm a very important guy, you know. I don't want to tell you. I know you. you're way more the, important the, the Dan than Jacobson I am. Dan Jacobson was a big deal. It's a bi- very big well, production. There's a lot of production that goes into this thing. It's important. Well, 
I know you're the probably the most important person on the station, and I, I just you tower over the importance of well, Terry well, Wickstrom outdoors. Now, well, listen, I got I got to I got to talk to you about something though. It came, you came okay. up on the show yesterday. Uh, we talked some fishing actually during I was filling in for Stokely and Zach. Now this guy this guy sends in a picture of this giant fish. I said that thing's got to be f- about four feet long, and it, it was. He says it measured out to be forty eight inches. And I said, now first off, guy. On the Ramoslaw.com text line, I said, first off, is that your fish? Or are you pulling a Terry Wickstrom where you grab somebody else's fish and pretend it's yours? And he says, no, 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 this is my fish. He says, it's a Wahoo, right? And uh, so I says, oh, like Wahoo's Fish Tacos. Now, Terry, I never knew that that's why they called the place Wahoo's Fish Tacos. And uh, I said, oh, so they put Wahoo fish in those tacos? And uh, he's like, you know, oh, no, 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 no. Wahoo fish is like, uh, you know, $120 for five ounces, Terry. So Wahoo fish is really expensive? Yeah, well, you know, because it takes a great angler. You probably will never have to worry about it because you won't catch one. But, no, Wahoo is a, is a very popular fish, and it's, it's, it, it is expensive because they're not commercially fished the way some other fish are that you might use in tacos like, cod or tilapia or something but speaking of meat yes sir. i heard you had i heard you getting all this meat ready for the fourth of july and i never didn't get my invite i must have missed the call well i'm actually cooking nothing for the fourth of july and aren't you out there in minnesota getting wined and dined i know what you're doing terry you're on one of your junkets where you're like uh, hey uh, I'll, I'll, I'll post something on my youtube channel if you just whine and dine me is that what's going on i know what's going on here. no we, we don't use youtube we use facebook and the yeah. radio show and yeah, exactly. all the other things i do i mean uh, we would you don't think we would leverage that for personal satisfaction oh no do you? no 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 not at all so, so hey the, before no, before I, I let you go before i let you go what do you think about this broncos owner situation is it changing yeah they're going to sell the thing but what I'm going to talk about today is a, a texter texted me after this, and then I went in and pulled the court file. You know, there's another lawsuit going on. The Broncos are suing the former owner of the team's estate. <laughs> They're suing him now. There's another trial set to go off in September that we didn't really know about. Well, that's because there was a little bit of ownership left or something. Isn't that right? There was a right of first refusal that they want to make sure that uh, they Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yes. Sir. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, it's getting, I'm cutting into your time, even though you used all my resources getting ready, so I had to wing it on the well, show today. Well, have fun out there on the uh, lounging around the resort uh, and all that stuff, whatever you're going to do. Go catch some walleye, will you? This is, this is work for me, Dan. I'm out here doing research. I'm hard at work while you're sitting there in that plush studio. What do you pair with walleye, by the way? Like a red wine? Oh, no, 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 no. It would have a metallic taste. You definitely want a, a white wine. Depends on how you cook it. And if you just, the most favorite way to cook it out here is to deep fry it. And then maybe you want a bubbly or a Pinot Grigio with it. Well, I'll leave that up to Karen. All right. All right, my friend, I'll close this out so you can pretend to talk sports. Fantastic. All right. All right, we're going to wrap up Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Join us every Saturday from 9 to 11. Follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Follow our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Thank you to Karen. Thank you to Kyle. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour. We're past the top of the hour, but we'll let it take them to Dan Jacobs and maybe sports. 104.3 The Fan.